We are continuing our series, uh, Set Free to Live Free. It is a look at the Ten Commandments. Keep in mind, the people of Israel, or this is in the book of Exodus, for 400 years they were in slavery, they were in bondage in Egypt, and then God, in a miraculous way, uh, he frees 2.5 million people out of slavery. The problem is, as soon as they left, they still lived as slaves. That's all they knew, 400 years. All right, so they, all they would do is trust in themselves and not in the God who freed them. And they are a lot like us today. We're constantly, instead of turning uh, to Jesus for our daily walk, we still struggle with how to live free and faithful to God. We still struggle to break sinful habits and patterns in our lives. We still struggle to love God and to love others. Why? Because we have been consumed all of our lives with loving ourselves. But God is a gracious God. He knows where we're at. He knows that we're free and yet we keep going back into the cage. So what God does is he gives us his law. He gives us his word so that we can now know by reading and living his word what it means to live free. What it means to live free. All right. Uh, So with that said, I begin this morning... With the words of Jesus Christ. You're going to see them in Genesis uh, chapter uh, 2 verse 24. And I say Jesus because number one, he's God. But he also reiterates this in uh, Matthew chapter 19. For the scripture says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Again, this is in Genesis, but also Matthew 19, 4 reiterates uh, this beautiful truth. Again, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What we see in this verse, we see a covenant, not just a contract, between a couple of people that, hey, you could break it if, if need be. No, we see a covenant, not just between two people, but we see two people under God with God's blessing and God's guidance entering into a lifetime covenant. Not only is it a covenant, but it's also a consummation of marriage where people come together physically, relationally, emotionally, and physically And so the two leave their mom and dad and they cleave to one another and they become one flesh. Marriage is the highest and the holiest of all human relationships. The love, honor, and respect of the husband-wife relationship. Listen, here's why God uh, values it so much. The husband-wife relationship is a beautiful illustration, a beautiful picture of Jesus's relationship to the church. That's what we are called to be. Every uh, married couple in this room is supposed to be a visible representation of an invisible reality. We are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Wives are to graciously submit to their husbands. And both of them, in mutual love and submission, they share and they show the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is because of this high value of marriage, placed on by God himself, not by government, but by God himself, that is why we are commanded in Exodus 20 verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. If you were to look up in a dictionary what the word adultery uh, means, most of us, we kind of know it, but just in case, adultery is defined as voluntary sexual intercourse between a married person and someone other than his or her lawful spouse. A commentator says this, Adultery is the complete corruption of God's good creation of marriage. Through the sin of adultery, Satan tempts us to seek sexual fulfillment 
in the avenues other than the one God has ordained, which is within the bounds of a monogamous heterosexual marriage. Adultery rips at the fabric of society. Why? Because it tears apart marriages and families, which are the building blocks of society. You have broken homes, you're going to have broken communities. You have broken communities, you're going to have broken states. If you have broken states, you're going to have a broken country. And if you have broken countries, we will have a broken world. So believers in Christ, speak to you right now. If you are a Christ follower, if you have bowed your heart and your knee to Jesus, and he is your Lord and Savior, listen, Christ has set us free from sin, death, and hell. And he has shown us how to live in a way that not only brings him glory, which is the greatest and highest call of any one of us, But he also has shown us how to be free from sin's slavery. He has it in his word and in his church. I'll talk more about that in a moment. But he has also given us joy or the ability to have joy in relationships with others. So I want to say from the beginning, I want to be as clear and as blunt as possible. To sleep with anyone other than the person that you are married to, is a sin against God, and it is a sin against others. So with that said, what we need to do is we need to kind of deconstruct. We need to find out where this come from, comes from. So where does adultery begin? Where does adultery begin? Well, in Matthew 15, 19, Jesus tells us exactly where it begins. He says, for out of the heart... Come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, and he gives a whole list of things that originate in the heart of an individual. So adultery begins right there. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 and 28, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. To which we get that, okay? That's pretty clear, pretty blunt teaching. Do not sleep with anyone other than your spouse, all right? Do not commit adultery. But then Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So church, guests, let me ask you a question. Where does adultery begin? It begins in the heart of the individual. It begins. Now, how does it begin? We know where it begins. How does it begin? Listen, here's not how it begins. Right now, this very day, this very moment, you're not just following closely to Jesus one second, fully and utterly submitted to him in, in, a, in a continual Day-by-day, loving relationship with God through Jesus Christ, walking with Him, talking with Him, just being in great proximity with Christ for one second, and then another, you're in the arms of another person. That's not how it begins. Adultery is a sinful progression of, number one, leaving your first love, Jesus. It begins with leaving your first love. Outwardly, you may look perfect. Outwardly, you could be going to church. You could be uh, serving in ministry, giving money to help people uh, all over the world. You could be doing all those things outwardly. But love is an inner thing that produces outward action. And if you have lost your first love, Jesus, you are in danger. To put it according to Exodus 20, in order to, to fail... In commandment number seven, you have to fail in commandment number one and two. You shall have no other gods before me. You see, the opposite of worship of the one true God is not atheism. Not believing in God at all. That is not the opposite. The opposite of worshiping God is worshiping something else. And so adultery begins when you take God off the throne of your life 
and you put yourself or somebody else upon it. So it begins by leaving your first love. And then, in your mind, you leave your spouse. In your mind, you leave your spouse, even if it's for just a few moments. And then eventually, it leads to the physical embracing of someone who is not yours to hold. That's how it begins. Now, what I want to do, and I want to be very careful in in the things that I say. I I want to speak to you uh, from a pastor's heart. I want to speak the truth. I want to speak it in love here. And what I'm telling you, I wish I could say that I'm speaking like I'm speaking out a window, shouting to you. But no, I'm speaking into a mirror because I need to hear these words. Because I know my heart And it is desperately wicked. Without the saving grace of Christ, I am doomed. But with that, some of us may have very sensitive consciences when it comes to this situation. So I want to clear up some misconceptions before we go pretty deep today. All right? And you're like, whoa, you're not going deep yet? No. Uh, There's something that I need to cover that has brought me peace because... Uh, If you're in my small group, you would know a whole lot of my story. But just uh, outwardly, let me just share with you. Uh, At a very young age, both my parents worked. They were constantly out. We had cable television, and I was home alone a whole lot. I saw things I shouldn't have seen. I allowed my mind to wander on things that it should not have wandered. And uh, sin has put a grip on me uh, since I was a child. And because of that, I'm telling you, I know this. I don't just know this theologically. I know this experientially. So, with that said, I want to clear up some darkness about what sin is and is not in relation to our sex drives because some of us may be dealing with false guilt. Number one, we as humans are sexual beings. Anybody knew that beforehand? (laughs) Yeah, we are sexual beings. Our sex drive is a blessing, not a curse. The sex drive that God has put into us is a blessing, not a curse. I'll go so far as to say this. Men, if you didn't have a sex drive, we'd never mow the lawn. We'd never try to woo our spouse. I'm just being blunt honest here. So it's a blessing that men and women have a sex drive. But Satan would have nothing more than for you to believe that sex is sinful. And boy, I fear that as a church, we have, we have tainted the definition and the emotion of sex to where we have said that sex is sinful. The, the, the very command of God to Adam and Eve and to Noah was to be fruitful and multiply. There is a whole book in the Bible that is dedicated to the proper sexual expression in marriage. Sex is a blessing. The sexual drive is a blessing, not a curse. So because I learned that truth, it is not wrong to notice the beauty of another person. I had to learn that because every time I thought I noticed the beauty of a person, I thought I was the vilest, most terrible person. Which means this, I would go to the Grand Canyon... And I've never been there, but I've been to places like that where I would look at the beauty of God's creation and say, wow, God, you are amazing in your wonder and your beauty. And I'd look and I'd see a lady, oh my goodness, I'm simple. No, enjoy the beauty of all of God's creation. Enjoy the beauty of God's creation. I know I'm speaking kind of, uh, some of you getting nervous now. Hang, Hang with me, okay? It is not wrong to notice the beauty in another person. It's not wrong to notice the beauty in God's creation. It's not. As a matter of fact, many of you are married today because you notice the beauty in God's creation. Okay? So we've eased up a little bit. Good. All right. Listen, and it is not wrong to have a desire for sex. It is not wrong to have a desire for sex. It is not wrong, listen to me carefully, 
It is not wrong to experience sexual temptation. For Jesus Christ himself was tempted in every way, yet without what? Without sin. So Joshua Harris, a pastor and a writer, says it this way. Jesus did not come to the cross to rescue us from our humanity. He entered into humanity to rescue us from our sinfulness. He didn't come to save us from being sexual creatures. He became one of us to save us from the reign of sin and lust, which ruins our sexuality. So number one, all we, we are all sexual beings, and it is a blessing, not a curse. But now to number two. Thought number two is this. Sexual fulfillment outside of God's plan is always sinful. It is always sinful. Sinful lust takes that which is wonderful and beautiful and disgusts it and makes it sinful. Sin has been described as trying to fulfill a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. That's what lust is. Trying to fulfill a legitimate need, we have a wonderful, we we have humanity. We have a sex drive. And it's to be used in a proper way. Sin is taking a proper desire and using it improperly. Sex outside of marriage is wrong in thought and in action. Joshua Harris goes on to say this. Noticing an attractive person is not wrong. But undressing that person in your eyes or imagining what it would be like to have them is. A sexual thought that pops up into your mind isn't necessarily lust, but can quickly become lust if it is entertained and dwelt on. The excitement for sex and marriage is not sin, but it can be tainted by lust if it is not tempered with patience and restraint. I heard someone make this, uh, I may have read it in a book, or I heard it from someone, and it makes so much sense to me. Because there's billboards, there's, there's magazines as you're at the grocery store, there's all different types of temptations out there. But the line between uh, what you cannot control and what you can control can be described like a doctor's office. How many people can go into a doctor's office waiting room? Anybody can, Right? Anyone can open up a door from the outside and go to a doctor's waiting room. But the only people that can go back into an examining room are those who have been called back, right? Right? So with that said, our mind is going to pick up on a million things a day, if not more. But that which you let into the recesses of your mind and your heart, that is where lust is. Matthew 5, 28, Jesus says this. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent. You see that? Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Just, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Just as murder profanes the image of God because we're all created in the image of God. Adultery profanes the institution of God. And God did not say that lust leads to adultery. He said lust is adultery. Does this apply to pornography? Did you know that the Greek word for uh, sexual immorality? I mean, we think pornography, uh, you know, it's crazy how you watch movies uh, nowadays. It is so accepted on music, television, and everywhere in between. Matter of fact, I've seen movies where uh, a wife would be like, something's going on, something's wrong with my husband, and she finds out, oh, it's just porn. Thank goodness. That's that's what's seen in, in, in our society. 
Oh, thank goodness, it's just porn. But you know what's interesting? The word pornography comes from the Greek word pornea, which is the word for sexual immorality. So, if pornea is actually sexual immorality, then that means that sexual immorality is sin, whether it is in print, pictures, phones, or computers. It's sin. One commentator, Michael Green, says, to deliberately foster lust by erotic books, by plays, by films, by magazines and websites, is to fly in the face of God's commandment. For who is to know when that, that the bridle of decency or convention will snap under the strain and the weight and the racehorse of our passions will break loose? What the author is saying is this. You're feeding yourself with images and thoughts and videos and everything. And you're just constantly uh, turning your mind because your mind can handle only so much. And you are filling your mind so much with lust and pornography and and sexual immorality and adultery uh, that you're constantly seeing and, and experiencing that one day your passions can't handle it anymore and will go out and act on what it constantly thinks about. But we may say, no, 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 that's not me. You see, I only look at porn But I will never do that in real life. You know, that is a dumb argument. And here's why. Because I bet you never thought you'd be focusing most of your time and energy on pornography. And yet, here we are. If you're trapped in that, you cannot with confidence say that you will will not take the next step. So men, women, pornography is a sin against a holy God. It traps you, puts you back into sin. And at best, you have a life that is consumed with something other than freedom. At best. At worst, you may not even have a relationship with God. Let's talk about the consequences of adultery, whether in the thought or in action. In the Old Testament, I didn't put up the words or the, the verses for that, and I apologize, but Leviticus 20.10 or Deuteronomy 22 says this, in the Old Testament, those who were caught in adultery could be executed. That's how seriously God takes this sin Matter of fact, in the New Testament, there was a woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. And some people were ready to stone her to death. The Old Testament takes this very seriously. So does the New. Without getting into too much, because there's a whole sermon on this. The Old Testament, the penalty is death. In the New Testament, the door seems to be open for divorce. In both instances, there's death. Death. Now, that's not the heart of God. The heart of God is you'd reconcile. That you would reconcile. One pastor used this example once where his desire for his house He had a nice house with some columns in his front. And what he wanted to do is he wanted to have a vine go all the way uh, around uh, the trellis in the the, the doorpost of his house. He just thought that would be so cool to see a vine just go through uh, the very front of his house. So, of course, he got a vine and he planted it. One one, uh, uh, stem, whatever you want to call it, of a vine. And he watered it and he nursed it. And you know what he realized? Vines don't grow that fast, as fast as he thought. So he would spend months and then years to get exactly what he wanted. And it was awesome. It was so beautiful. It covered up. It it was the picture that he always wanted. And he not being very much of a green thumb, he of course took care of his yard as well. One day he was weed eating. 
You know where this is going. And he got a little too close to the vine. And when he nipped that vine, in one split second, killed it. Or at least he killed from there up. And he said it, it, it didn't happen immediately. But he said over time, that green lush vine turned brown and withery. And he was utterly disgusted. All them years that he worked hard to cultivate this vine, seemingly gone. You know what he did? He watered that little stub. And eventually that stub became a vine again. It took years. That's God's desire for you in marriage. He doesn't want us to get a divorce. And there's, there's, there's individual things and we won't go there today. But the heart of God is reconciliation. But it's going to be hard. And you shouldn't do it alone. So in the Old Testament, absolutely. Execution. But you know, today, the cost is extremely high. Men, women, you commit adultery. You will lose your testimony. You will lose your witness. Can you build it back up again? To some people, yes. Some people, maybe never. In the Old Testament, there's a story of a man named Joseph. He had an opportunity to commit adultery, not because he was married, but because a woman was married and wanted to have sexual relationship with him. And here was Joseph's response. How can I do such a thing and sin against God? See, a lot of times we, we tend to rate sins, right? Listen, all sins are equal in their penalty. But not all sins are equal in their community. And the sin of adultery will destroy the community. You'll experience loss of testimony. You'll experience pain in the home. Sometimes even divorce. You'll experience broken families, not just one. Many families. Many families will be affected by one adultery. You will have broken societies. And yes, depending on your relationship with God or not, you will experience death, even spiritual death. Maybe even physical death. And I say that because in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Proverbs, if you commit sexual immorality, two people, consensual sex, which is wrong in the eyes of God, you'll have to deal with those consequences, which are heavy. But if you deal with someone's spouse, you may have a very angry spouse who wants your blood. Just being real. But worst of all, if you die in your sins, without Christ, you will face the wrath of God, who is holy and who gave us this commandment. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 10, listen to what it says. Paul says to the Corinthian believers, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexually, or thieves, or the greedy, or drunkards, or revilers, or swindlers, they will, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. That will not happen to those people who is marked in heaven as sinners. Okay? Keep your Bible there if you, if you turn there. Alright? After what we've said today, I know it was heavy. It has to be. Is just as heavy as the prohibition is to not commit adultery, even more so is their glory and a proper 
Christ-honoring marriage for God. That type of marriage can change eternity. So yeah, it's weighty on both sides. Weighty with blessings and waiting with pain. So what do I do now? We understand where it comes from the heart. There is a clear action that will destroy. Comes from the heart. It's executed by number one, getting, getting rid of God in our thoughts and life and focusing on other people or other images. The consequences are severe. So what do I do now? In response to everything that I've learned, what do I do now? Number one, we must be cleansed by Christ. That is the absolute very beginning of where we're at. Because Paul the Apostle, in the same breath as he was writing, so to speak, that he said, do not be deceived, the sexually immoral, the the adulterers will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says this in verse 11, the very next verse, and he says, and such were some of you. Speaking to the church, there was a time in the, in the life of the believers in Corinth that when heaven looked at the books of those people who were sitting there that day, their names, like you, we'll use my name as an example, Scott Scripture, full of lust and adultery in his heart. That's what heaven saw of me. Because that's the only way it could see me. Because I was responsible for my sin. But then Paul says, Some, such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. This is what that verse is telling me. There was once a time when I was in opposition to heaven. When my name was written in the books that said guilty. And you know what? It was absolutely right. I am absolutely guilty and deserve the fullest extent of the penalty and the wrath of God. Why? Because ultimately all my sin is against him. And if he's an infinitely holy God, the only way to pay for it is infinite punishment. But God, he showed me And he showed some of you his love for you. He showed you that in his love he is willing to pay my sin debt on my behalf for me. And what he asks me in return is to receive it. And when I do, that book, there is a line in that book and it says, paid in full. Praise Jesus. Praise Jesus. Do you, do you get what that means? Heaven no longer sees me as an adulterous, lustful, lying, murderous person. It sees me in the righteousness of Christ. My sins have been washed away. So now I am seen as a saint. So we have two options here. Allow God to see us washed in Christ's righteousness or we can ignore that gift and allow God to see us in all of our sin, all of our guilt and all of our shame and we will have to experience the penalty for that. And the greatest penalty is the rejection of his son. Which tells me this. Ultimately, Adultery won't send me to hell. Ultimately, homosexuality won't send people to hell. Ultimately, any type of sexual immorality, lying, stealing, cheating, will not send me to hell. The thing that will send us to hell is the rejection of Jesus Christ. You reject him, you reject life. You reject him, you reject the gift of God for your sins. And so what do you do now? You come to Jesus. He's your only hope. Your spouse can't save you. Your kids can't save you. Your parents cannot save you. You can't save you. 
The Bible says we're dead in our trespasses and sin. Dead is dead, and you can't do anything about it. You and I need a Savior. You need to be cleansed by Christ. Secondly, we need to confess our sin to God and to one another. We need to confess our sin to God and one another. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins to God, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Can you imagine that? Holy God of holy God, because and only because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross to pay for my sin, if I come to Him in repentance, confession, I say, God, I was wrong. I'm the one. Would you forgive me? By the justice and the faithfulness of God, he will. That blows my mind. He will. Then, I confess to others, because I need some accountability. James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. This may not be the appropriate place for that. Small groups is. Talking to your spouse is very appropriate. Matter of fact, I think what would be awesome is if during the invitation today, every husband and wife just hold each other's hand and pray for one another. Pray that that God would keep us pure for him. And if there's any impurities, that we would confess it to God and to one another so that we we can move on to something whether move on to uh, forgiveness and grace, move on to maybe some counseling, to move on so that this weight, this, this captivity that God is wanting to release us from can be taken care of through the blood of Christ. Confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. Third, we need to get into God's word in prayer. We need to get into God's word. Psalm 19, David says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. I said earlier, if you focus on on looking at people, whether in person or in pictures or in print or whatever the case may be, if you focus on those things, your mind is going to be consumed with lust. But instead... If you renew your mind by the word of God, you spend time with the people of God and you pray to God, your mind will start being filled with those things that are good, those things that are holy, those things that are honorable, those things that are just, those things that are of good report. By the way, you want a verse to memorize? That was Philippians 4, 8 and 9. Write that down, Philippians 4, 8 and 9. That is a verse for us to memorize. That is the verse that my wife prayed over our kids many, 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 many nights before they go to bed that their minds would be renewed by God. That's what we need, a renewal of mind. So we get into the word of God and we get into prayer. Jesus himself said to his disciples, he says this in Matthew 26, 41. He says, watch and pray. Why? So that you will not enter into temptation. And any kind of temptation, whatever that is, whether to them it was temptation to to walk away from, from Christ or what if it's also in our lusts. You pray. You say, God Help me today. I'm feeling weak. I'm feeling worn today. Or maybe some of us, we feel the weakest in our our greatest uh, joys. We let our guard down in our greatest victories. There was a man named Elijah who was a prophet. The very thing happened. He experienced one of the greatest victories. And he allowed depression and, and anxiety over a lack of faith in God to do that. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that all oppression and anxiety is a lack of faith in God. All right? I know that. I have experienced that with family members. Sometimes you need extra help. But to them and to many of us, we give into temptation because we put ourselves in bad situations. Number four, we need to be committed to purity in all of our relationships. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 4. Paul says, you want to know what the will of God for you is? Listen, this is the will of God, your sanctification. 
That means you're being made holy. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in that manner. So protect yourself from sexual immorality. That's the will of God. And do not hurt your friends. Do not hurt people. By sexual immorality and adultery. He says, he goes on to say this. For God has not called us to impurity, but to holiness. Number five. Respect the sanctity of all marriages. Let me say that again. Respect the sanctity, the holiness of all marriages and all people. Hebrews 13, 4 says, let the marriage be held in honor. You know how you hold marriage in honor? You don't sleep with people before you get married. You say, that is an honored thing. And I will have relationship with my spouse according to God's plan. His wonderful, beautiful plan. And I'll be to experience all the joy that God has for me and my sexual expression with my spouse. And that's a beautiful, wonderful thing. And so I'm going to honor God by, by keeping marriage held in honor. And then he says this, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. That's speaking against adultery. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. So we respect the sanctity of every marriage and every person. If you and I respect the sanctity of all people and all marriage, that will be a roadblock for us to to not fall into the temptation and the sin of adultery. And number six, avoid all things that cause you to stumble. Now that's legalistic, isn't it? You know what legalism is? I want to be be very clear on this. Legalism is you coming up with laws in order for God to like you. Guess what? I can follow every law in the book and God will not like me anymore than he does right now. Because the only thing that God uh, caused God to embrace me is the fact that he gave me his son And I received it. So God will not love me anymore. His love is consistent. He will not love me anymore. Whether I keep doing more right or if I do any more wrong. And I could rest in that assurance. So legalism, when we think of it that way, no. But I have some personal rules in my life. You may call it legalism. That's fine. That's fine. I won't impress my laws on you. But I have certain rules in my life. To keep me protected. For example, number one, a pastor told me once, never wear cologne, except when I'm on a date with my wife. I know that sounds weird, and sometimes you're like, Pastor, you need some cologne, (laughs) all right? But I don't do that. Another thing that I had had to do, and I love this because a lot of the encouragement of this was, this person didn't even uh, say this to me at all, but we have some deacons at our church that does not do social media. I thought to myself, man, I need to do social media so I can interact with my, with my uh, web audience. No, I don't. What I need to be is sexually pure. So the only thing I do now is really Facebook. That's it. I'm not doing Instagram anymore. I'm not doing uh, Snapchat anymore. Why? Because when I get on those, there's usually images that pop up. And so I, for my own benefit, I, I stay away from that. Now, I'm not here to tell you that I'm perfect. As a matter of fact, the reason I put those laws in place is because many times I've stumbled. And so that's why those personal laws are in my repertoire, so to speak. So I am to avoid things that cause me to stumble. 1 Corinthians says, flee sexual immorality. Whatever that looks like to you, if that's going to work a different way, because you pass by uh, certain buildings or certain signs that, that can lead you down a road you shouldn't go, then you do that. What? That means I'll have to leave the house a few minutes early. How important is, your, is your, uh, your sexual purity to God? Is it worth five minutes? Avoid things that cause you to stumble. Jesus would say it this way, Matthew 5, 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin... Cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body. Go to hell. Listen, what does it say? 
says pretty clearly that there are things in your life that you need to cut out. Those things that, that draw you a certain way or a certain direction. Number seven, finally. Let's have some common sense around those other than our spouse. Amen? Uh-oh. He's speaking like, like Mike Pence. Oh, yeah. And this is not to be offensive. I just know my wicked heart. If I counsel a woman, I'll counsel one time with my door open. If it's a second time, it'll be with my spouse or a secretary or someone. I will not ride in a car with a woman by myself. Except, surely, uh, you, you gave me permission to ride with you. So, thank you. Love you. Okay? Um, love that lady. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I will not, I won't do that. Someone say, well, what if you're out in the parking lot and it's raining and there's uh, a lady out in the parking lot and the rain's getting all over her? I'll say, bye. I'm off. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'll put an umbrella out for her. Come on. Okay? Listen, sometimes you got to do the radical because he's worth it. And Letha is worth it. So have common sense around those other than your spouse. Let me conclude here. How would God describe your sex life today? I'm speaking to everyone in this room. How would God define your sex life today? Would he declare your relationships pure? If not, what are you going to do about it? How would God describe your thought life today? Would he declare your thoughts pure? If not, what are you going to do about it? How would God describe your relationship to him? Close? Arm's length? Or non-existent? And as I close, I do want to make one more comment. Because what I have really done today was I, 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 I've taught on adultery. And God's holiness, his holy standard for it. And our way to get back to, to relationship with him. But I want to say one quick comment about those who have been offended by adultery. God knows. All right? God knows because he knows everything. But to those in here who are hurt because of the sin of, of adultery, whether in action or in mind, not only does God know because he knows everything, God knows experientially. Because God himself had a nation constantly committed adultery against him. So much in fact that in the book of Jeremiah, there was a separation that needed to take place. God knows the pain that you're dealing with. You know why? Because God is the groom of this bride. And we commit sexual and spiritual adultery against him every day. God knows. He knows where you're at. Allow him, allow your church, allow your small group to come alongside you and walk with you through this. The worst thing that you can do, listen, couples, listen, uh, even people who are not married yet and are dealing with sexual immorality, the worst thing you can do, and I know this, I've, I've counseled couples, and they've, they've waited too long for this. The worst thing you can do is listen to yourself. Because you know how much wisdom you have? Only what you know. And if you're in the middle of the situation and you only listen to yourself, you do not invite other people into your life to, to speak words of truth into your life, you are going to talk yourself out of what it is that God is calling you to do and to be in the midst of those situations. I don't know what that is. But I urge you, I beg you, do not do it alone. You're not built for it. You're built for community. We're built for relationships. That's why this church promotes so vehemently small groups. 
You are not able to do it alone. So don't even try. I know that was a tough lesson. One that's necessary for the cleansing of the church, for the glory of God, and for the sanctification of the institution of marriage. With that, let us pray. Father God, I come to you now through your great and your gracious Son, Jesus Christ, the one who frees us from the penalty of the sin of our adultery, whether it's physical, whether it's adultery of the heart or spiritual adultery because we choose to follow other gods instead of you. God, if we're honest, every one of us is guilty of this. We have chosen other things above you. Some of us are guilty of the very act of adultery. God, help them to know the seriousness of it. But God, help them to know that the reason you put this in your word is so that your people can have freedom from it. They're not alone. So God, my prayer is that those who are caught in a pattern of sexual sin, that they would experience freedom today and for the rest of their life as they walk in faith step by step with you and with others Father God I pray for all couples today I pray that during this this time of invitation Lord that maybe they'd pray together to continue to strengthen the marriage they have or maybe it's time to heal Help us to know that even we're not alone, that there's people who are here to pray with couples and individuals. Don't have to be alone here. I thank you for the truth of your word that says, now to Christ, who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of his glory, with great joy. This is all to the only God, our Savior through Jesus Christ, our Lord, the one to be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.